You're listening to X's, proudly part of the Oddcast Network. Joining me today is author and long-term expat in Korea, Brian M. Williams. Annyeonghaseyo and welcome, sir. Thanks for joining us. Annyeonghaseyo. Uh, thank you for having me. Cool. So uh, before we get started, let's establish a bit of background. Uh, right now, you're in New Orleans, right? I, yeah, been living in New Orleans for two years. Very cool. Uh, and I'm in Cape Town, but turns out we ran in uh, the same social circle in Seoul. It's a small world. <laughs> Becky Elliott says hi, by the way. She, oh, excellent. I love it. I, I really do. <laughs> she, is, she is very cool. Uh, well, cool. So the journey from here to there and everything in between is the subject of your book, Stranger in a Stranger Land, My Six Years in Korea. I had the opportunity to read it a while back, and I really enjoyed it. I related to a lot of it, uh, having shared many of the same experiences in Korea but you experience these things from a slightly different perspective. Um, we were both foreigners there, both coming in from the States, but I, th- I think it was a little bit easier for me uh, as a white guy. You're an African-American, and that's sometimes made your journey towards acceptance uh, a bit harder, it seems. For me, it was really interesting to see this place that I thought I knew from a, uh, from a new angle. The Amazon link is in the show notes. I really recommend uh, you guys check it out. Even if you've never left Des Moines, uh, you'll be more world-wise for reading it. All right. If you don't mind, sir, I will read the description off Amazon for you. Sure. At his most modest... Oh, sorry. Nope. <laughs> Typo. At his most immodest, Brian would like to believe Bill Bryson would be able to recognize his influence on, on this book. It's a humorous, informative, and thoughtful exploration of modern Korean culture and expat life. The book is full of personal anecdotes, secondhand stories, and interesting facts, which are all interlaced with his personal narrative. Brian discusses serious topics like Korea's deeply embedded racism, its 1950s-style sexism, its demanding but unproductive work culture, and its highly lauded but deeply flawed educational system. However... He also talks about lighter subjects like K-pop, the expat in Korean dating scenes, its debaucherous drinking culture, and why he thinks Seoul <laughs> should be considered the party capital of Asia. By the time readers are done, they'll have an understanding of how a lot of expats view Korea, what some of its most significant and pe- uh, peculiar cultural differences are, and some of the problems it's currently facing. This is a must-read for anyone thinking of moving there. I actually agree. <laughs> That's actually <excellent. laughs> You know how it is with those Amazon descriptions. Sometimes you, you go back and you read that, and you're like, what the hell was that? Okay. So let's jump right in. Um, sure. How about we start in the lead up to the decision to pack up and move to the other side of the world? Um, tell me, what did you know about Korea up to that point? <laughs> That's <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I could find it on a map. Uh, I, I knew what its flag looked like. I knew there. I knew it was the good one. <laughs> not, not good, right? You, it's very important to make sure you go to the right Korea. Um, <laughs> um, 
And honestly, that I mean, that was about it. I don't even think I knew kimchi before I went to Korea. Honestly. <laughs> um. So did you uh, did you use a recruiter to find the job that took you out there? Uh, I did. I did. What did they say yeah. that really sold you on the idea of working in Korea? <laughs> um, I think I think it was like free apartment and free airplane. Oh, yeah, <laughs> the hard sell. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I um, well, I th- I think this this jumps us right into the perspective of uh, the idea that I had a different experience than perhaps a lot of uh, white expats. Because I, as I say in the book, um, I first tried to go there in 2004 right. and uh, I was soundly rejected. Um, I sent in my resumes. Um, six out of six recruiters called me back. They're like, you are wonderfully qualified. I'd already spent a year uh, living in Botswana, Africa, teaching. Um, so they said, you know, we will find you a job easily. Uh, we'll probably even be able to get you one of the better paying jobs. Um, and then they said, you know, just send in your photo. We'll get, we'll get this thing started. And then six out of six, I never heard back from. Um, and so four years later in 2008, um, I was graduating law school. It was a bad economy in America. Um, and I think, you know, it's just kind of a desperation thing. You know, it's just like, I had this in the back of my mind. I knew it existed. Um, so it was, you know, it might've been my plan F at that point. Um, <laughs> But I, but, you know, I went back to that well, and and for some reason, in two thousand eight, something had changed where um, things had improved enough that I was m- more easily able to find a job. Yeah, and that's, that's what brought me there. Hmm. So you make that decision. How do you break the news to friends and family that you're leaving for Korea? <laughs> <laughs> like, what was their reaction? Were they supportive? Yeah. I, and that's, you know, um, I had, as far as my parents went, my parents and family were very supportive. Uh, my friends, uh, it probably, it wasn't that unexpected. I don't think for me, um, I've just always been a guy in my friend circle who's been traveling, going overseas and things like that. I'm not, I don't think anyone expected me to stay six years. I didn't expect me to stay (laughs) six years. (laughs) Um, how how long um, were you in Botswana? Um, I was just in Botswana for a year, so that okay. was, but that was when I was 18, so that okay. uh, ever since then, you know, I've just kind of been traveling, so for the people who knew me, they just kind of knew it was in my DNA at that point. Okay. Um, so you weren't one of those... You know, it's Sorry? It's, it's easier to sell when, you know, because in Korea, you always, everything's a one-year contract, so it's just one year at a time. One more year. One more year. <laughs> just one. <laughs> Um, well, that was, uh, quite the, uh, the advantage. I mean, you know, like, um, most of the expats that we meet in, in Seoul, um, I don't know. It's, it's been my experience that they never traveled at least to that extent before they moved to Korea. So do you, do you think that, um, well, we'll get back to that. (laughs) So, um, all right. Uh, you're, when you're on your way to the airport, how how are you feeling about it? I mean, was there that moment of hesitation going, okay, Botswana is one thing, but this is Korea. Um, if I'm being truthful, uh, my way to the airport was a, maybe a little blacked out. Uh, so that helped. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. I kind of I kind of came to in Minnesota, uh, waiting for my to Seoul. Um, 
No, I mean, yeah, I think I think it is that thing of that I had been traveling for a long time, and that this this was it was really something I wanted to do. I at that point in time, I'd never been to an Asian country. Just kind of in line and living my life, um, so there wasn't a lot of hesitation on my part. Um, I can definitely understand if it was if if it was a, a much bigger deal um, for other people. It should be. It's a it's, it's quite a dramatic change of pace. Um, but for me, I you know I just went with it. Um, wasn't a lot of second guessing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you land at Incheon and you start to make your way out of the airport. Was someone waiting for you? Yes. They sent someone um, to pick you up. A- oh, lucky bastard. <laughs> <laughs> send some, send someone for you. That's terrible. No, dude. They um, gave me a bus number. They're like, okay, we'll see you then. Oh my god. Yeah, I um, I talk about it in the first chapter. Um, yeah, it was just you know, it was a, an Ajishi, a older Korean man. Uh, he didn't speak a word of English, um, but he had a sign with my name on it. I guess someone told, showed him how to write my name, um, and. He just basically put a, a pre-dialed phone in my face and somebody was there to speak a little English and was like, hey, this guy's going to take you to your apartment. And that was about it. You know, you fly 7,000 miles, a guy holds a sign with your name on it <laughs> and uh, someone on the phone says he will he will take care of you. And, you know, uh, <laughs> so you that's part of travel, trusting other people. <laughs> <laughs> so so they, um, they took you to your apartment straight away? Uh, straight away. Okay. So, how was it? What did you think when you walked in for the first time? Um, I I was probably I was looking for the rest of it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to be a common all... reaction. <laughs> uh, um, where, uh, I don't remember where where was your first apartment. Um, I was in Boondong. Shout out Boondong, oh, okay. uh, Sune Suneyuk. Uh, <laughs> So, I mean, honestly, like, a, you know, as far as moving in Korea, like an upscale area, um, yeah. probably, pro- you know, not a lot of poverty in Korea to begin with, but this was definitely kind of an upscale neighborhood, an upscale uh, suburban area. So a satellite city um, that really was kind of described as uh, a lot of rich people in Seoul thinking that Seoul was too crowded. So they kind of built this satellite city for them. Um, it was three quarters of a million people. Um so, you know, still still big, still significant, a lot of uh, densely packed uh, high rises and everything, um, quite beautiful, uh, had a lovely park running along the river that ran throughout the entire city. Uh, it, was, it was great. I mean, it really was. It was cool. Hmm. Uh, so you wake up the next morning. What's... <laughs> <laughs> What's the first thing that pops into your head? Um, it is 8 p.m. and Sunday where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I mean, that. I mean, talk about Korea uh, and the work culture. Yeah. You know, I mean, you fl- I flew something like 24 hours straight, uh, you know, a 13 hour time difference. And you go to work the next day. Yeah. You know, nothing says Korea like you go to work the next day after that. Um, so, so um, I lived in an apartment building with a lot of other expats. They put all the expats there. Um, and so someone from my job came and picked me up. Uh, we walked to work, quite a, a nice walk. Um, and that was it. It was, you know, it was just uh, let's let's see what this is. Let's let's find out what's going to happen. 
Um, so it's just, uh, I had no expect, I, I guess I had no expectations. Hmm. Uh, so that, that helped a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't, I knew I didn't know what to expect. So, uh, for those who haven't had the chance to read the book yet, um, they're going to make the assumption that, uh, you were teaching at a hug one because that's what just about everybody does, but you got to do something else. What was your first job in Korea? Yeah. Um, I, I got extremely lucky. Um, I actually wrote textbooks in Korea. So, um, ESL English as a second language, uh, huge industry, $15 billion industry. Uh, last time I looked at the numbers. Um, and so somebody has got to write the books. Uh, and did you have so, any experience writing ESL textbooks? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> See, you gotta love the irony of that. A multi-billion dollar industry. <laughs> The content is created by people who've never done it before. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no. Um, I guess when I lived in Botswana, Africa, I done I helped develop a AIDS prevention education curriculum. Yeah. Uh, but it was ten years earlier, and I was eighteen at the time, so uh, I probably wasn't as involved as I thought I was. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know why they gave me the opportunity. I worked for a really large company, Avalon. Oh, you um, Avalon. I don't think you actually. I worked at Avalon. Yeah. Okay. I don't mention it in the book. Yeah. Cause, uh, I have some libel laws, uh, that aren't, uh, too protective in Korea. Yeah. So I left all those specifics out. Um, but Avalon, very large company. Um, and they large enough to decide they want to start pr- producing their own books instead of paying outside companies. And so I literally just applied at the time they started their in-house publishing and maybe because of my law degree, maybe because uh, I helped develop curriculum in Botswana, uh, they offered me that opportunity and uh, I jumped for it. it was, and it was great. It was a lot of fun to do curriculum, write textbooks. Hmm. So what was the office demographic like? For those who haven't read the book yet. Um, for me, uh, again, well, and, and I think this would be true for most expats there because they're in education. It was overwhelmingly women. Mm-hmm. Um, it was overwhelmingly women in their 20s. Um, and, and many of them were, most of them were single. Uh, a lot of what I observed uh, very consistently was women who got married, maybe had a 50-50 chance of coming back to work after they got married. Uh, if they got pregnant, I never saw them again. Yeah. Um, so... So it was women at that age of, of getting married, and so a lot of them in and out of the workforce, um, which which definitely impacted how I kind of saw the culture in that regard. Um, so with so many women uh, both working, but then seemingly, seemingly uh, wanting to be housewives uh, when, when all was said and done. It was like holding down the job until they could get married. Mm. Uh, that was my observation. So, this big jet-lagged black guy walks into a predominantly Korean female office. What sort of expressions are you picking up on their faces? <laughs> um, in all honesty, I think at that I think at that point in time, I'm I'm still so much uh, in my own head that I'm I'm not even concerned with how people were reacting to me. Um, but but you know, um, everyone's very perfectly polite. I think the very first day. Uh, I got to work. They had a ice cream day, so somebody in the office went out and got everyone ice creams, um, and and that was it. You know, it was just it was just friendly and nice, um, and and 
uh, people were perfectly polite and uh, and helpful, and uh, yeah, that, uh, that was about it. Like it, for me, it was it was no no initial barriers or no initial awkwardness mm-hmm. about just walking. Um, it was really just trying to figure out what am I supposed to be doing, uh, how do I do it uh, correctly. So I, for me, I was just so in my own head. If if anything like that, if anything was going on in terms of people uh, looking at me funny or anything, uh, I I didn't notice it because, yeah, too much in my own head at that point. <laughs> Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. So in general, though, over time, um, it, what became your feeling on Korean corporate culture? Do you do you feel now like you fully understand it? Because I don't think I do. I do, do I fully understand. I think in in some ways, um, in some ways, yes, because it's it's just this extremely high regard for authority. Um, I know I know a lot of expats they they hate when people uh, suggest that Confucianism has any influence left in the culture, but for me, there's just such a high regard for authority. And and if you look at Confucian philosophy, you see a high regard for authority. So. Uh, there's a huge overlap there. And so for so much of what I just saw was just a lot of people in a high position not doing a good job, but no one's ever going to remove them. No one's ever going to demand uh, any kind of accountability, uh, any kind of accountability. So um, for me, I, I was just constantly there going, it would be so simple to improve the productivity here. It'd be so simple to improve the efficiency. It'd be so simple to, uh, especially in regards to education, it'd be so simple to make some small changes that we know would benefit the children. But because if you're the boss, there's no one to answer to. Uh, nobody does, no one's ever looking for the way to improve things. Everything's most just about keeping the status quo. So nothing changes, nothing ever improves, nothing ever gets better. Um, it was a big, for me, it was a big frustration there. Because uh, it was just constantly all these little things you could look at where you're like, this would, if we just made this one change, it would dramatically improve the way we were able to get things done. But nobody will make that change because no one has to be accountable. No one, if you're the boss, you're the boss. No one's going to be evaluating you. No one's going to be checking up on you. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I corporate culture. That's my read on it as well. You know, I've been thinking about it a lot since I since I left. And I do you think they could change it or and part 2 of that should they? I mean, it it, it works for them. You know, is is it just our western sensibilities that are offended by the inefficiency? I, it's um I'm still wrestling with this after being out of the country for a while. Anyway, um, well, clear, I mean, clearly Korea, I mean, Korea's done an amazing thing. I mean, one of the things that has to always be known about Korea is that it started out uh, the 20th century as one of the poorest countries in the entire world. Mm-hmm. And it's now the 11th biggest economy. So, yes, you're, you're right. Obviously, something they're doing is works. Um, so, so it's hard to knock them in that regard. You went from one of the poorest countries to the 11th largest economy in the world. Um, but at the same time, I don't know, isn't, shouldn't efficiency be a kind of universal virtue? Um, that's one of those things of, of cultural differences, right? Um, is there, is there a universal right? Is efficiency always the, 
is, is that a cultural belief, uh, inefficiency, or do should some cultures be able to go? We just don't value this efficiency, doing things quickly and fastly, fastly, <laughs> doing things quickly. Um, oh, I mean, we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna make any kind of effort in that regard. I I don't know. I don't I don't see how efficiency isn't demanded by capitalism constantly. So when you look at Korea and you see so much. Again, and I mentioned this in the book, you have people doing the longest working hours of any country in the developed world, but also having the lowest productivity. Yeah. If, if for no other reason, it should change on the idea that people should be able to spend more time out of the office. If you're spending more time in the office and getting less done, well, who does that help? Right. And um, that, um, that rush that they, that they seem to be in, I, I can't help but feel that that contributed in a, in a significant way uh, to the Galaxy Note 7. <laughs> I wonder. I really wonder about that one. I mean, if they were going to yeah. be, I mean, that, 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 I mean, that cost Samsung a fortune. I mean, if they were going to turn around their corporate culture, um, it might, you know, it would have been in response to, uh, to, I don't know, their product catching fire. But, yeah. <sighs> Anyway, it's a bit of a sidetrack. Um, so, all right, you're settling in. Uh, how long did it take for it to stop life, or, sorry, uh, being in Korea to stop seeming surreal? Was that, was that the case for you? Like, wandering around, just going, because, I don't know, for me, living in Asia... Um, it, it felt surreal for quite a long time. I really couldn't wrap my head around it. Um, did you struggle with that at all or did you, how was your transition in? Yeah, I think in the book, um, you know, I, 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 I don't put like hard, I don't put any timelines on it cause it's going to be different for everyone. Um, but, and if you observe in the chapters, it, it you know, basically I, I start talking about the first days, the first weeks, and then I start talking about the first months and then I start talking about the first few years, right? So I'm trying to, I'm trying to show this progression of uh, basically, I guess, wading into the culture. Um, but boy, when did it stop being surreal? I think, I think that even after six years, if there was any time where I allowed myself to, to really stop and think about what it was I was doing, I'm a foreigner in a country, one of the most isolated countries in the world. Um, it, could, it could always come back. Um, but boy, when did <laughs> it, it, months? Uh, for certainly several, maybe six months. Yeah, I was probably constantly in a state of just, wow, I can't believe I'm here. Um, but like I said, if if six years later, if I really sat down and thought about the fact of, um, I'm in a country of 50 million people where maybe, maybe. Uh, by my research, 300,000 are not Asians. Yeah. Right. And so in expats, of, and, and this was, this was what, something I found with the expat community is we very often, we didn't, we overestimated our presence there constantly. Uh, if for no other reason than because mostly we're around each other, right? We kind of sought each other out. Yeah. And so we instantly start thinking that we're a much larger presence than we are because, you know, you walk into the expat hangout and, you're like, oh, there's plenty of other people around here that look like me. But that wasn't the case. It really is something like 300,000 people out of 50 million uh, who aren't Asian. Um, in Korea, it's about 3% of the population is, a, is are non-Koreans. But 60% of that 
are uh, people of Korean ancestry. Mm. Um, and, and then you have Americans as the next largest immigrant group. And then you have maybe 10 other Asian countries as the next largest immigrants group. So you have about 100,000 Americans. Um, and then you have to go down the roll like five countries to get to another European or Western country. So we're extre- an extreme minority. Korea is really one of the most isolated countries still in the world. We might not think of that because it's so modern and seem- seemingly so interconnected, but it is, it is remarkably, remarkably isolated still. Hmm. Well, now it's an awkward transition because that was a very <laughs> sophisticated point, but my, my next one was... Um... <laughs> <laughs> When did you start going out at night, and what did you think of Korean nightlife? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dude, I'm okay. just <laughs> there's a list. <laughs> um, I I got extremely lucky. Um, I it turned out that when I moved seven thousand miles uh, around the world to end up a ten minute walk from one of my best friends from college, um, so I went out. I went out like night two <laughs> in Korea. Um, it really was. Uh, someone knocked on my door. Uh, my friend uh, Chris Gugaroso, shout out. Shout out. Um, he knew he knew where I was living. Uh, he uh, and he knew someone in the building, uh, and he literally had him come knock on my door. Uh, so like nine thirty, my second night in the country, uh, random white guy knocks on my door and is like, uh, "Chris Gugaroso sent me to come get you. You're supposed to come get beers." <laughs> and that was it. We, we went off to uh, Dublin's Irish pub, <laughs> obviously an expat hangout, and. Uh, it, it, it started from there, maybe, and it probably didn't end <laughs> for six years. <sighs> Would you care to yeah, share it, your first bad soju story? Oh, my God. <laughs> my first bad soju story. Um, I, I write about it in the book. Um, I, I just thought maybe you'd want to. Maybe you're the s- devil's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We call it the little green devil. <laughs> it's you know it's that first shot that first shot tastes like nail polish uh the second shot tastes like nail polish <laughs> the, the third shot you start to pick up those hints of maybe this isn't so bad maybe there's a little water in here too <laughs> and then by the fifth or sixth it all tastes like water and that's and that's the problem <laughs> and that's the absolute problem um i don't know if you ever saw the inflatable ads they had basically the wacky oh yeah uh, men, uh, yeah yeah bouncy dancing men where they shoot the air through the big yeah there's like um, a big fan at the bottom and it's kind of like a yeah. um yeah yeah it's kind of like a so it inflates, it inflates right yeah yeah um so so my first soju experience involved me um regressing back to high school football and deciding that that was a tackling drill (laughs) 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 and uh i full-on i full-on went into about five of them full body tackles um i tried i tried i i watched myself around soju after that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'd like to believe that's true, but um, <laughs> I have my doubts. <laughs> um, so, uh, how did you how did you go about meeting people, like uh, expats and Koreans? Uh, did you go to different places, or were you going to uh, to spots that um, that were sort of mixed? Um, for me, uh, I I found it pretty effortless to meet people. Um, 
but part of that was because I, I definitely stayed within the expat community a lot. So I found it to be as simple as finding finding the Irish bar in your neighborhood, find the Irish bar in your city. Um, you know, and that would basically be an automatic uh, Western expat hangout. Um, and, you know, and, and that was one of, the, one of the things I really, really loved about Korea was that it was so easy to socialize. It was so kind of effortless to make friends. And, you know, why wouldn't it be? We're basically all thousands and thousands of miles from home. We're, we're all in this uh, same category of an extreme minority um, dealing with Korean life in every other turn. But at the same time, when you go get a beer, you can get it at a Western style bar. Um, and, and, you know, and, and when we talk about the cultural differences of America and Korea, uh, you know, even the bars are different, right? Like yeah. a, a, a proper Korean hof, a proper Korean bar. You don't meet people. It's not it's not designed to be sociable. You, no, you sit in these hot booths. Um, you bring your people with you. you. Right. You, yeah. You, you would not go into one by yourself. Um, but then you find the Western bar and and then you kind of start to realize that uh, Western bars are set up for you know, the lone alcoholic, you can walk in <laughs> and sit down at the bar uh, by yourself. You won't, you're not made to feel awkward for it. And, uh, you know, five or six drinks, if you're not talking to somebody, then, you know, that's kind of on you. <laughs> <laughs> so it leads into what was the dating scene like? <laughs> um, I can honestly say it's, it's, it, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's cool for a writer to say this, but this is one, one of my favorite lines in the books. Yeah. Um, I, I describe the dating scene as, uh, fast, furious, and not very serious. Um, most certainly I knew people who met and got married in Korea. Um, I'm actually going to Prague, uh, this summer for a wedding from two people who met in Korea. Um, so certainly relationships could happen. Serious relationships could happen. But for the most part, I, I thought it was kind of a, a curiosity dating scene, right? You know, like, um, if I was... You know, and what do I mean by that? I basically mean, let's say that you meet two people at the same time. You, you find them both pretty evenly interesting, evenly attractive. Uh, but the, 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 the deciding factor would be, oh, this person's from America. This person's from, let's say, South Africa. Well, I've never dated a South African before, so I should probably see what that's like. Yeah. Right. So it was, so it was a lot of, uh, it was a lot of just, you know, let's see what's out there. Let's, let's, let's test the waters. Um, so for me, it was a, a lot of, uh, intercultural dating mm. uh, and, and I enjoyed it. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and dating was, you know, pretty easy. There's, there's a lot to do at night. There's a lot of social scene, a, a huge social scene. There's always something going on. Um, so it was easy to meet people, easy to have things to do, uh, and go out for. So, yeah. Well, how would you say? Korean dating culture differs from ours because it certainly seems like it does to me. Yes. Um, I try. Yeah. And again, I try to explain it in the book, but you know, um, most of my experience with Korean dating culture was secondhand, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it, it seemed like, it seemed like it was a little more serious, right? Um, I think in Western culture, we maybe are more okay with the idea of casual dating, Whereas in Korea, I, I felt like I picked up on the idea that dating was for a purpose. It was to see if you could marry the person, right? Um, and so, uh, so what I saw with my again my mostly female coworkers uh, 
was a lot of a lot of them going on lots of quick dates, testing the waters with somebody. But then if they found someone they liked, it really kind of moved very quickly. So I definitely had many female coworkers who probably got engaged to someone they met within six months. So it went from lots of little coffee shop dates and dinner dates to finding someone very uh, that they could be serious with to very quickly getting engaged. Hmm. So that made me believe that the purpose of dating there was much more so about uh, really finding someone to spend, spend your life with as opposed to, uh, you know, this will do for now. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, how are things at the office? How, how, are, they, how are they treating you? You know, it's um, like, let's say the midway point. Um, the midway point, I was still, um, I spent most of my time working for Avalon, the uh, a really large um, ESL company. Um, it was, it was good. I think, you know, in a, in a way, my, our boss, uh, she, I think she came to uh, respect all of the foreign workers that she had. Um, so she, she, she would kind of listen to us. Uh, when we had like really big complaints or big issues with a, a product, a book we were making or something like that. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, something I, I had to learn and it took me a while to learn this was you really, you're not, you're not supposed to say no in Korea. Um, you know, when, and when it comes to Japanese and Chinese culture, I think that's kind of an explicit rule. Don't say no. Yeah. Um, so your boss comes up and gives you a, a impossible task. You're not supposed to say no. You're just supposed to start doing it. Um, and then what happens is, uh, if it tur- when it turns out you can't get it done because it was such an unreasonable task, they'll give you, you know, there's no, there's no consequence again. There's just kind of, okay, we'll give you more time. But when I first got there, I would initially, you know, I'd see an unworkable task an unrealistic expectation. And I would say, Hey, I can't do this. Like this, this just can't be done. And in Korean culture, you know, that's basically, uh, that's talking back to authority and that's something you're not supposed to do. So it took me maybe two years to finally catch on to this idea of, okay, don't, you know, if they, even when they ask you to write a 10,000 word essay for a book uh, in two hours, which obviously just can't be done, you're not supposed to tell them that. You're just supposed to try your best. And then when that deadline arrives, you go, oh, by the way, this, I couldn't do this because this was impossible. And they'll just go, okay. <laughs> and, <clears throat> And you'll be fine because you didn't talk back. Yeah. But talking back, actually saying, hey, I couldn't, this was impossible from the outset, that actually makes you look bad in Korea. Yeah. So, so it really is kind of a, a don't say no culture. It's just, you know, put your head down, do it. When it turns out it can't be done, they'll be fine with it. Yeah. Well, uh, for the readers, there are some cringeworthy scenes in the office uh, that I think they might enjoy. Um, especially if it's their first exposure to uh, Korean corporate culture. Uh, well, when did you start noticing that uniquely Korean form of racism? How would you describe it? Um, I think, and I think this is where uh, I think this is where uh, my my take on on things is is perhaps particularly valuable. Um, I'm a black man from America. So what I found for a lot of white Americans, uh, a lot of white expats, Western expats, was that Korea was kind of their first exposure to racism, right? They're coming from cultures where their race is dominant, where their race is preferred. And so they haven't been subjected to racism of any form. 
Um, but for me, I'm, I'm coming from America. Um, there is unquestionably racism in our society, and a lot of it's directed towards people of my skin color. Um, so for me going to Korea, it wasn't, it wasn't my first time dealing with racism. Uh, it was allowing me to compare and contrast forms of racism. And I think, and I, I really think that's where, um, I had a lot, a lot to offer in terms of, uh, a perspective. So I wasn't dealing with racism for the first time. I was comparing and contrasting it. And the way I would put Korea's racism in the, in the way, um, the way I was really trying to emphasize in the book is that it's really different. In America, we are really stuck in this notion of you're white, you're black, you're Hispanic, right? We don't care if you're from Guatemala, we don't care if you're from Peru, you're Hispanic. We don't care if you're from India or Pakistan, you know, you're you're Indian, right? We we, <laughs> we don't allow for a lot of variations. Yeah. Um, but when yeah. you get to Korea, Korea's form of racism is everyone who isn't Korean, you know, isn't as good as us. So Japanese, God forbid you're Japanese in Korea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Korea, Korea has some very good, you can look up the history that Korea has some good reasons for having some hostility towards Japan. Oh yeah. But at the same time, you know, in America, you know, we would go, you're both Asian, not going to fly, mm. not going to fly in Korea. Right. So there, I explain their racism as a form of, uh, racism and nationalism. Uh, Korea, again, when I talk about it being one of the most isolated countries, it's also one of the most racially uh, homogeneous cultures in the world. There's no ethnic group in Korea. There's no uh, uh, racial, there's no sub, subdivision of racial groups. Everyone in Korea is Korean. Uh, so so the, the notion of being Korean is within itself is, a, is an idea of race. And so for them, Japanese, Chinese, um, uh, maybe even North Korean at this point, uh, that's not Korean. Mm. And so you see a form of racism where by my American, the, the, the goggles America has given me where all I see is black, white, Asian. I'm watching Asians be racist towards Asians, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and then and then again, it's <clears throat> it's also that issue of uh, watching white people deal with racism for the first time. Yeah. In Korea, Koreans are preferred. Everyone else is kind of their, um, is, is kind of an unwelcome guest, I, I, I really feel like saying. Um, so even white people, white people might be the most preferred of foreigners, right? A lot of, I'm sure a lot of Korean girls would love to get the blonde-haired, blue-eyed white, white boy from America, but at the same time, uh, that blue, blue-haired, uh, sorry, blue-haired, that blonde-haired, white-eyed uh, white boy is also going to face racism, perhaps yeah. for the first time. Um, people might get up and change seats when he sits down. Um, he he might walk up to a bar that says no foreigners allowed, and that includes him. Um, he might he might find that the girl he's dating won't introduce him to his parents, right? There, so he will be experiencing racism for the first time. I would experience all that racism too. All that would obviously be directed towards me, but at the same time, there's still more racism for people of darker skin. Yeah. Um, right. Like we could go on Craigslist right now and I'm pretty sure we could find a job that says whites only. In Korea. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And there, the pay is actually affected by your accent. 
you know, they, they find that uh, white people with American accents make the most out of Hogwan teachers. Um, on the uh, on the opposite side of that scale, are people like um, uh, Kiwis and South Africans actually get paid in a lot of cases get paid less because Koreans don't like their accent as much. <sighs> and, and that's yeah, and that's it, right? So it's just it's these prejudices and things that just coming out from all directions that uh, we just don't have in our culture, right? A, a preference for accents and and a preference for hair color and all these things. So it's just this constant barrage of, of racism directed towards anyone not Korean, yeah. anyone not Korean. But I, I kind of describe it as a totem pole. So it, it is kind of, hey, if you're white, you're going to you're unquestionably going to deal with racism in Korea. Everyone will. You're a foreigner. Um, but then it kind of goes up from there. Like uh, the, the, the experience a lot of whites will have with racism in Korea is yeah. kind of the low water. And then it and then it kind of builds up from there. But it but it's not to say it's not to say that the the racism directed towards whites and all foreigners isn't substantial because it really is. You know, I think in the first chapter I talk about uh, my coworker. Um, he gave me this really poignant advice, and and this really was my first day in Korea. And he basically says, look, if you ever get into a fight with a Korean, if you ever have any kind of altercation, you gotta you gotta remove yourself from the situation because you're gonna go to jail. Yeah. Right. It doesn't matter who started it. You're a foreigner. No one's going to listen to you. And, you know, so so that's, you know, and that's and that's where racism starts to cut really deep when it starts to get into the institutions, when it starts to get into the system, when it starts to get into the law enforcement. Right. That's that's where it starts to be substantial. So so everyone, white American, black American, you're going to face substantial racism uh, potentially. Hmm. But um, but again, whites. uh kind of are the low watermark um, and then you move up from there because even being a black American um, I observed um, blacks from Africa still were treated differently right like I kind of had a little bit of a protection because I was from America so at least my culture was a little bit respected yeah um, but Africa was you know really viewed in a very negative way and then Africans also had the annoying habit of tending to learn Korean so they also tended to hear when the Koreans were talking, saying racist stuff about them. <laughs> uh, so there definitely a few times I walked into Itaewon watching a, a, an African yelling at a Korean waiter because the Korean waiter had said something racist thinking no one would know. Yeah. Uh, so that, that, was, that was a really regular thing, though. So, all right. We're 11 months down the road in your first year, and your contract is up for renewal. How does the thought process work when you're considering staying one more year? Can you describe right. maybe what was going through your head as you were wrestling with that? Yeah, I mean, you're just, um, I mean, it's, you, there's, you're feeling a little awkward. You're on, uh, you're on uh, Robert Frost's, uh, you know, the road not taken, right? You're, you're not on the worn path. You're, you're not following your culture's suggested course in life you're not accumulating wealth you're not accumulating uh possessions and so you feel it so you're feeling really awkward right you're looking at facebook you're seeing your friends back home buying houses maybe getting engaged having kids and you're going wow i'm doing something really different here um and so you start to feel this perhaps you start to feel this cultural pressure that maybe you didn't even realize existed in your culture of wow i didn't realize there was such a definitive 
definition of what success is. And now that I'm so far away from it, I, you know, I'm feeling a little awkward. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of the desire to get home. Let me, let me get into the race, right? Let me start, uh, looking more traditionally successful by my culture's standards. But then on the other hand, uh, you know, you're sitting in a place where you're having a lot of fun, (laughs) you know? Uh, I mean, like I said, in the book, I call Seoul the party capital of Asia. I, I stand by that to this day. I've been to most of the major cities in Asia and just nothing compares. It's, uh, it's the drinking culture, the, the, the expat scene of just being able to be out all the time, uh, something going on every day of the week, um, and everything being relatively affordable. You, you know, you're not, you're not necessarily getting rich in Korea, but you're not going in debt, right? Like nothing's getting put on the credit card. Nothing's, uh, you're, you know, you're not financing a car. You're not in any way kind of financially obligated to anything. Your, your life is paid for there. Yeah. And so, and so it's a kind of a, it's kind of a sweet deal. It's kind of a, it's kind of a really good deal. And so that's kind of the balancing act. It's, do I want to get back on this road, uh, that everyone else is on? Do I want to have this more traditional appearance of success or do I want to keep doing what's actually been a lot of fun, pretty enjoyable and, and not financially irresponsible either? Yeah. Well, so some people say that, um, the second year is harder than the first because the newness has worn off and you're either okay with the closest thing that can pass for routine in Korea or were you starting to develop the itch to leave after year two? No, I think, uh, for me and again, you know, and, and I'm coming, I'm coming from that, uh, background of having traveled a lot. So, so yeah. maybe I, I soaked up more than other people would have. For me, I, I really just, it, it was kind of a no brainer. It was kind of a no brainer. You know, I think uh, that first year I'd gone to China and Thailand as vacations. Yeah. Right. I still had, you, you know, you get the time off between contracts. They'll usually, they'll fly you home if you negotiate it correctly. So, you know, I still get to go home once a year and see my friends. And it's just, it was, it was a no brainer. I was like, I had a lot of fun. I didn't go into debt. Um, I was actually, I was able to, save enough to, to pay down a little bit my debts. Um, and the only thing waiting for me if I go back to America would be to, you know, finance a car, uh, rent an apartment and start, start that American life that, that just, uh, <clears throat> that would just kind of lock me into being in America and only America. Right. Cause the more you start accumulating debt, the more you start owning things, yeah. the more they start being you, it, it starts limiting what you're able to do. But while I was in Korea, I was just, uh, able to be very free, uh, 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 reduce my obligations. I, you know, if I, if I wanted to leave Korea, I could leave at any time and I would be in a, a better position, uh, than I was while I was in America because I'm not, I'm not taking on debt. I'm not owing money. I'm just able to, uh, enjoy myself, pay for it and and finance all these great vacations so it it was it was the biggest no-brainer in the world my second year Hmm. for sure so every uh long-term expat um grows their own little group you know um (laughs) who was in yours what were they like where were they from uh my group uh uh I, i started out with uh 
having that college friend. So that, uh, he, he kind of fast tracked me yeah. on, uh, the social scene for sure. Uh, he had been there for a year already. Um, but I had, uh, I, I got a, my friend, Mark West, uh, I described him in the book as looking like a out of work lumberjack, a, a big guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, and, and, you know, and that was, and that was really one of the cool parts about being there because I, I don't know if I would have enjoyed the expat scene if it was just Americans, but I had friends from Canada, I had friends from England, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, right? And they're they're all there, not not necessarily in huge numbers, but they're all there, and um, so it it just always felt dynamic. It always felt like even just in socializing that I was learning about the world, that I was getting this greater understanding of what's going on, just because I was constantly around people who weren't from where I was from. Yeah. Um, and so I just, I thrived on that. I really, I love that. I absolutely love that. And then by the time towards the end of my six years, um, you even started getting a lot more Europeans, people from non-English speaking European countries, um, and, and more people from South America as, uh, exchange students. And so the, so the expat scene, uh, was becoming even more, more, uh, uh, voluminous. Uh, in terms of the countries represented. And so it was just, I just always felt like I was growing. I was expanding my knowledge of the world, even if it was while drinking beers. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> you know, when you go long-term as an expat, you kind of have to get used to saying goodbye to people. Um, Do you ever learn how to cope with saying those goodbyes? And did their goodbyes make it easier uh, when you were ready to, you know, say your own? Yes. Um, so yeah, that, that group of friends I just talked about, my friend from, uh, college, uh, Mark, uh, uh, my Scottish friend, Andrew, uh, Janice, lots, lots of people from all over the world. Uh, many of them left before I did. Um, right. Like six years is a long time. A lot of, most people probably don't spend six years in Korea. So some of the very best friends I made were, you know, right at the beginning because it is that first year. It is that uh, we're all new to this. You, we are running around the country, like taking it in, uh, like we've just, you know, never seen anything before. So you know, a lot of great bonding with that, the people you meet initially. Um, but yeah, I, I outstayed probably just about everyone uh, in my initial friend group uh, in Korea, and and that was a factor because. Because yes, you meet you, you know, there's lots of people, there's lots of opportunities to socialize, but those people you meet that those first few months, that, that first year, um, it's special. That bond is special because you are all taking in something so new and so different together. And you know, how does that not bond you in a special way? So when they left, uh, when they started leaving and most of them left about Sadly, most of them left around the same time, so about three or four years in. Um, it was a it was a factor in me going. Okay, maybe I should pack up. I probably I'm not going to bond with anyone as well as I bonded with these people, just because Korea because uh, the opportunity is not there. Korea is not as shocking anymore, right? Yeah. Well, <coughs> at, at any point, did Seoul ever begin to feel like home, or was it always temporary in your mind? That's a great question. Um, I think in a very in a in a very real way, you know, the routine the re- routine becomes routine. So, 
I was familiar with it. I was comfortable with it. I knew what time I had to get up to catch the bus, to get to the subway, to get to work on time, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I knew that on the way home from work, if the sushi place in the subway stop wasn't busy, that it's a great place to go grab some food. Um, and, and, you know, I'll do it whenever, but I think for me, I think I was constantly able to, to step back and remember that I was such a small minority in this country, Mm -hmm. such a small minority, because again, on, on top of just, uh, the lack of people who aren't Asian in the country, uh, then being black as well. So I was just always able to 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 keep that perspective of going, wow, I'm I'm really just such a, a, a small percentage of people here that it, it it never let it be home in terms of I want to live here forever. Yeah, I never had a feeling in Korea. Um, I felt comfortable. I felt safe. Um, I had friends. Um, I, I knew how to navigate, but. Korea, I never did I have a moment where I was like, I could live here forever. Yeah. Well, in your first year or two, I mean, what did you think about the people that you meet in places like HBC who had been there for like a decade? And did your perception of them change over time as you came to kind of understand where they were coming from? Yeah, you know, especially those first, God, those, those first few months and stuff, you know, if I just heard... I think in that first month or two, if I had met someone who said they'd been there eight months, I'm just like, how? Oh, my God, this is <laughs> that's amazing amount of time to have been here. Um, and then, yeah, and sure enough, you'll walk into the bar and see the guy who's been there 10 years. Uh, <clears throat> and so for me, it was, you know, I mean, they, they were they were that well, a wealth of information, right? They had that perspective on how the country had changed because it was changing fast. It was it was changing really fast. And so as much as I might have said. I felt like a minority or, or, you know, a really small portion, you take that back 10 years and, you know, and it, and it amplifies, it, it gets exponentially more so. So those people had a really great insight always, but at the same time, um, they had, it seemed like most of the ones I met, they had kind of accepted their role of, yeah, I'm not fully in Korean society, but I'm also comfortable with, uh, being, Right. I mean, I'm comfortable being uh, the guy who goes to the expat bar and hangs out in the expat scene. They found they found their life. And for most of them, it wasn't in Korean society. It was still in the expat community. Yeah. Um, Well, so let's go to that moment where you decide you're ready to tap out. You're going home. mm -hmm. What were the circumstances surrounding that? Did you just uh, wake up one morning and say to yourself, I'm done here? Um, luckily, I think in Korea, uh, you know, you always have those contracts uh, coming up. So you always, you know, you're always on uh, a schedule in Korea, right? You always have that moment to think. Yeah. Uh, is this what I want to be doing again? Um, and so, uh, so that, so, you know, so. Every year you decide to say is a, is a conscious decision. You don't just get to just kind of, it's like, oh, wow, that turned into 15 years real quick. You, you have to make that decision every year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at some point, um, and this goes back to our mutual friend, Becky, who was my, my employer, uh, who was my boss um, at the second company I worked for. And she created a really amazing work environment in Korea. Um, and what was amazing about it was that it was run by a woman 
It was run by a Western woman and it was run in a Western fashion. So my con- a lot of my complaints about Korean work life uh, um, did not apply when Becky was running my, my department. Um, I felt like I was in a very Western style workplace where efficiency was valued, uh, my opinion was valued. Um, um, I was given a lot of responsibility I wasn't I wasn't watched over like I was constantly incompetent. So I really I loved working uh, with Becky and in that environment in that West what I considered a Western environment. Um, but just after I signed my second year contract with that company, uh, Becky left, and the workplace very much went back to being more Korean yeah. uh, in terms of again I was constantly being watched because um, you know you can't trust a Westerner to I guess get things done correctly. Uh, a lot of responsibility was taken away from me, um, and a lot of just in- inefficiency was immediately brought back in. I was constantly doing last-minute projects. We're a publishing company, right? You shouldn't be doing last-minute uh, projects as a publishing company. So it went, it went back to being inefficient. And so somewhere in that last year, um, you know, just after I'd signed that contract, I was like, this is it. I can't do this anymore. Um so, you know, and I had also, I kind of, I kind of leveled out about as far as they would probably let a Westerner go in terms of uh, a career ladder. It was a really remarkable thing that a Westerner was running my department. Um, I did not have any expectations that I would be able to move up to that level. Um, so, you know, I kind of, I kind of maxed out on career opportunity, career advancement. Um, and again, yeah, I just I, I was never able to fully view Korea as home. It, it was not a place. I didn't see myself wanting to raise kids there or anything like that. So it just got to a point where it was like, yeah, it's it's, it's time to go. It's time to um, see what other opportunities are out there in the world. Well, when you put the plan to leave in motion, did you ever panic and try and stop the process? Uh, I mean, you'd been there for a long time and uh, expats... I've described the prospect of returning home scarier than staying. Was that the case for you? It really was. It no, it really was. Um, no, going. Yeah, the idea of going home, and and that and that was part of it. For, so for me, and, and maybe this this probably it spoke to what what I often told people is the reason I left Korea was the same reason I went. Um, I was I wanted a challenge. And by time after six years in Korea, the most challenging thing I could possibly imagine was going back to America. I think I could have gone to any other culture in the world. And because I was already on my toes about being in a foreign culture, right? I was, I was nimble. I was ready to, to I, I'd be ready to bob and weave with whatever was thrown at me. Uh, but going home to my culture um, was absolutely an overwhelming notion. And it's not, and it's it's no smart part of why I actually live in New Orleans right now. A lot of my expat friends, uh, people who know me well, and people who've gone through that same transition of trying to readjust, reacclimate to American culture, were like, "Go to New Orleans, man! It is not like America." <laughs> and, uh, and it really isn't. And it's really one of the reasons I've loved living down here because uh, there's certainly American aspects of it. I'm certainly back in American culture. But there's so much uh, new things to explore and do here that I, I really do almost feel like I'm in another cult country. And, and that, and that kind of helps that anxiety. There's something to explore. There's something to learn. There's something new to adjust to. Like I almost, I almost need to be adjusting to something to feel comfortable, right? I almost need to be out of place to feel comfortable <laughs> Yeah, is what resulted in Korea. Well, 
what was that one thing back in Korea that you were always saying you were going to do? It was going to be the first thing you were going to do when you got home. Did you do it? Uh, probably RB curly fries. <laughs> <laughs> God, I missed that. <laughs> um, yeah, let's see. God, what? Yeah, what, what was I? What was I thinking? I would really miss. I think like you know, it's just those little things. Avocados. Um, <laughs> Jeez. Uh, Avocados that most don't cost ten dollars each. Stuff was <laughs> yeah, most of my stuff was just food related, so it was just um, <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna get a whole lot of this kind of food. I'm gonna get a whole lot of that kind of food. Funny, um, it tends to be, you know. <laughs> I think it's <laughs> that way for just about everybody. Um, do you ever, do you ever think about going back? Um, I can say, you know, um, I took between coming from Korea and getting back to America, I, t I took a year traveling around the world. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, I got back, I was staying with my parents. I think I was there for about four months, um, looking for work. It was, you know, still having a hard time finding a job here. Um, and so I think about three months in, I, I started, I was like, okay, let's just see what's going on in Korea. And so I think I did like maybe two interviews to perhaps go back as a teacher. But at the same time, it was, you know, it's kind of like, um, it's, it's like chasing a ghost, you know? It's like, if I were to go back to Korea, so many of my expectations wouldn't be met because it's, you know, a lot of my memories of Korea are about the people, the friends I made. And yeah. They're not there anymore, right? And and I wouldn't be able to dive back into it with that enthusiasm and that newness um, that helped make me so open to meeting people and making really good friends. So if it, going back, so, so in thinking about going back, it, it's just realizing that you just can never recapture what it was that you first experienced. Yeah. And so it's not that I'm close to going on, that I would be close to going back. It's just realizing, having to make sure that my expectations are in line with reality. And, and that reality is that it will be very, di if I were to ever go back, it would be extraordinarily different than yeah. the first time I would. Yeah. So how do you feel when you hear K-pop now? <laughs> uh, it, it, bring, it, it brings a smile to my face. Um, and the reason it's able to bring a smile to my face is because I know I can uh, turn it off and I won't have to hear it again yeah. uh, for a couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay but in it's, small uh, doses. Bubblegum music, you know, it's, uh, it's cute, it's fun. Uh, if it's a if it's a girl band, I, I probably wouldn't mind watching the video. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, overall, no K-pop. There there are no K-pop songs on my uh, iPhone. <laughs> so the book. When did the idea to write a book about your years abroad first come to you? Uh I I don't know how well you know Itaewon, but it came to me in Soul Pub. Oh sure, <laughs> about three eight. Jesus, who doesn't we're know Soul all Pub? <laughs> we're all great ideas are hatched. Oh. <laughs> oh, you know, it's, um, <laughs> Mistakes are made at Soul Pub. <laughs> Soul Pub. Uh, yeah, if, if, if uh, anyone's from Soul Pub's listening, you know, it's lifetime free drinks here. Um, <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think I always... I always joke that if I were to ever, you know, write a book on Korea, I'd probably start off talking about pushing a woman, right? Because, uh, you know, one of the biggest cultural differences is just that idea that 
you know, it, pushing is okay. Like there's so much crowding on subways and buses, right? That you, you just have to kind of push. Yeah. Uh, so, so I always, I always just had that. I was like, I was like, I think that'd be a really good hook. And, you know, so sure enough, my book starts off with, uh, you know, the first time I ever pushed a woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Among opening lines, that one, <laughs> that was up there for me. I was reading the book after talking to you. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> right. Who, yeah. At least, at least you opened with something meaningful. Uh, you know, I'd probably start with uh, addressing the uh, the crosswalks and the total lack of direction, and using that as a metaphor, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, well, I, and I feel like I feel like this is the same direction, right? Because it, it is. There's just so much chaos. So I kind of knew. I kind of always was like, if I were to ever write a book, this would be a really good way to start it. And I think I had that in my head, like maybe three years in. Um, but I, I never expected to write a book necessarily about Korea. And then what allowed me, what caused me to finally write a book about Korea is that um, that last year when I, when I knew the whole, that whole last year, because remember you're on contract. So I knew that whole last year. I was like, I'm not, I'm not coming back. Um, I watched a woman. She was carrying a kimchi pot, uh, one of those big clay kimchi pots yeah. on her head. Right. And I, and the whole time I'd been in Korea, five years at that point, I'd never seen a woman do this. And not only was she doing something that would have, at some point in time in Korea, would have been a daily sighting, she was doing it in Gangnam, the most developed, the most futuristic looking portion of Seoul. Yeah. And so that contrast just created a paradigm shift in the way I view Korea. And all of a sudden I was like, wait a second, this whole time I've been looking at Korea in terms of, wow, this country's really tied to its past. You know, there's a lot of, uh, of old beliefs and a lot of old cultural practices running through this culture. But at the same time, this country has changed so much, right? Again, one of the poorest countries in the world at the beginning of the 20th century to halfway through the 20th century to the 11th biggest economy in the world. This country has changed so dramatically. And so once I realized, once I had that perspective, I was like, I think I can write a book about this. I think I can write a book in which I can talk about how, uh, how much uh, ancient beliefs and ancient practices influence this culture, but at the same time, this culture is really racing into the future. Yeah. Um, so once once I gained that perspective, I was like, I think there's a book here. Yeah. And again, it came to me at 3 a.m. at Soul Pub. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, as far as ideas that come to you at 3 a.m. at Soul Pub, that one's fairly benign. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> So what what kind of advice would you give people out there who are considering moving abroad? Do it. <laughs> there you go. Do it. Do it. It's no, it, I mean well, there's just there's nothing better like I I I I I have to remind myself, you know, some people, you know, for health reasons, for maybe they have to they have responsibilities that I don't. So there's lots of people who you know, they're not going to be able to travel. They don't have that opportunity. And, and you know, and I, and, and, and I appreciate that. But if you have the opportunity to travel, to, to go and experience another culture, do it. It, it. it it will change you in the best possible ways. It will make you more aware of your own culture. It will make you aware of how things have influenced you that you didn't realize had influenced you. Hmm. Um, some people might call those biases. So it'll make you more aware of your some of your biases. It will it will make you more flexible and adaptable. 
to doing things differently than, than you were used to. Um, it will make you more tolerant, right? I mean, I'm, 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 I guess I'm getting, I'm, I'm doing the long way of simply saying Mark Twain's quote of, right? Like, uh, travel is a cure of bigotry and narrow-mindedness and, yeah. and, and something. Sorry, I butchered that quote, but no, it just, it just absolutely is. It's, it's such a, a fantastic growth opportunity and your life, everything in your life will be done better yeah. for being aware that, um, there's other ways of viewing things. There's other ways of doing things, and some of some of them might be even be better than than uh, what you were raised in. So once you gain that perspective that the world and other people and other cultures might actually have something to offer you, you'll never see the world the same. Yeah, I think I am who I am today because of my experience living abroad. You know, it seems like you feel the same way. Yeah, inseparable. Uh, I can't can't separate myself from those experiences. Yeah, I, I, I I'm absolutely who I am because of this. Can you think about how? You know, I hesitate to think about how boring I'd be without those experiences. <laughs> um, <laughs> any tips for those thinking specifically about moving to Korea? Um. Do a little, do a little legwork. Uh, double, double check on your job. Yeah. Um, try to try to speak to somebody who's working at the company you're working at. Uh, uh, I don't think most expats, you know, you know, we're looking out for each other. No one's going to try to sell you up the river. So if you're actually able to talk to somebody who's already working at the company, they'll probably give you, uh, you know, the, the 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 straight on what's going on there. If they're in a bad situation, they're not going to try to sucker somebody else into it. Um, so just do a little legwork uh, to make sure that the the job's legit. Most a lot of the jobs are, um, but yeah, just try to avoid some of the bad situations you can find yourself in. Um, and then and after that, I don't know. For me, I was I would I love Seoul. I would say go to Seoul, but the, you can certainly go out to a small country country out in the countryside or go to Busan or one of the smaller cities and have a fantastic experience. Um, but yeah, go go travel. Um, See the world. You'll, you'll just <laughs> fantastic, fantastic opportunities, and you and and you know, and what I've, I guess I've been gone from Korea three years now. Um, I still see my friends from Korea all the time. I'm, you know, it's 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 not a it's not a, a waste of a year. It's not like a year disjointed from your life. The, the people you meet, the, the, they they can be friends for life. Yeah. Uh, you'll make connections with life. I can, I can, at this point I can basically go anywhere in the world and I'll probably have a friend, uh, that I could sleep on the couch of, you know, that's such a beautiful um, thing, isn't it? I, I think so. I most certainly think so. You're like, Oh, I'm going to go to yeah, Cambodia. Uh, Who do I know there? <laughs> well, yeah. Right. That I, that I can put up a Facebook post and just say, I'm going to be in this city. Is anyone around? And, and very much large part because of Korea, there's a good chance somebody will be around that I know. Yeah. So, it just opened so many doors and, and expanded my world and and it, and it just lets you feel connected with the world. Like I, I, I don't I, I feel bad for people who don't travel in the regard that if you view the world as being big and overwhelming or scary or something like that, then then I just feel really bad for you because if you just travel a little bit, uh, you'll see how interconnected we all are. Mm-hmm. Um and, and and that the way you do things just it's not that it, you know it might look different in another culture but it's not 
dramatically different. We all want the same things. Kids play all over the world. Mom loves moms love their kids all over the world. Uh, families want better for the next generation. We all share these very basic aspirations, and and so it just it it, it makes the world a smaller place and feel more connected. And for me, that I think that's a good thing, especially in reaction to some of the things in politics going on in the world these days. Wow, that's a uh, that's a good place to end it right there. Okay. All right. Okay. Here we go. All right, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really enjoyed it. The book is called Stranger... All right, hold on, let me take that again, as long as we're (laughs) cutting it up now. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for your time, Brian. I really appreciate it. The book is called Stranger in a Stranger Land, My Six Years in Korea. Uh, It's available in paperback at lulu.com. The link is in the show notes. Buy it. Enjoy it. That was super cheesy. (laughs) How should I? Um, Buy it. Enjoy it. Jesus, I'm tired. Uh, um, One more time while we're rolling tape. The book is called Stranger in a Stranger Land. My six years in Korea. Uh, It's available in paperback at lulu.com. Link is in the show notes. Enjoy. How was that? <laughs> Thank you, John. Excellent. All right, sir. 